Welcome to the second episode of What They Don't Tell You About Crypto. Today, together with Domantas Pilaitis, one of the smartest developers I ever worked with, we were going to dive into security principles of the blockchain and we're going to figure out how we can improve that free security for users and enterprises. Domantas is leading Lossless Cash. Lossless Cash is a top-tier blockchain infrastructure company that provides a new layer of blockchain transaction security, protecting selected projects and their communities from malicious exploit and their associated financial losses. Domantas and his company is the reason why Sacru Labs survived during the Harmony Bridge hacked and why we managed to secure our community from jumping in into this massive financial loss after Bridge got exploited. Today, we're going to talk about two hot topics. First one is wallet security and how wallets get hacked. The second topic is smart contract security and how enterprises should make sure that their smart contracts are secure and well protected. So, welcome Domantas. Hello Domantas. Hi Mars, super happy to be here. How are you doing? How is Lost Flash Cash? How is everything going? It's good. It's good. It's uh, busy, but uh, but also good. There's a lot of stuff going on nowadays in crypto. Again, I think the market is becoming more and more sort of uh, active in a way, but it also means that the hackers are becoming more and more active, which means that we have more and more work each day. The market goes up. It's getting crazy again, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But crazy is good in this market, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Everyone is waiting for crypto to get more mass adoption, more people to come in. And actually, like, as we will talk about it uh, today, a lot of, because a lot of newcomers are coming into crypto and they are trying to get their way. They are looking to how to access crypto. So first topic of the day, which we're going to touch is how do wallets get hacked? So what do you use yourself? What do you use as a wallet? Yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm not a regular crypto user. So I, I like iterate through a lot of wallets and I use a lot of like, I guess I started from like the regular ones like MetaMask and then like really quickly I realized those are pretty bad in terms of security and in terms of UX. So, so I, I, I really enjoy the product that you guys built been using that on mobile for sure that's like my number one mobile go-to product yeah, yeah. but then on on like browser I, I sort of tend to iterate through a lot of wallets and I, I switch a wallet maybe every two to three weeks just to see what sort of uh, new security features this or that wallet uh, has what sort of innovation in terms of user experience one or the other wallet has or you know what sort of gaps in in their security they have so so that we at lossless could be aware of maybe new scams or or something like that going on that is tied to the wallet or like a cold storage device that recently happened to a ledger you know uh they they had this incident that we can sort of talk about a bit later mm -hmm. okay so you mentioned that like as most of the users because there's so much information online like a lot of people just recommend using MetaMask and, and, and some other like fully decentralized wallets because like there is a concept right now in the market that if it's not your private key, it's not your wallet. So people are literally choosing between two options. Either they'll go to centralized exchanges or and, and just use their wallet, but that basically limits them for accessing the real DeFi. So they're just literally using the layer on top of DeFi, which is like 
has not many things to do with the blockchain. And there is another option is like to use MetaMask or like Trust Wallet or other decentralized wallets. And a lot of people are not aware that are like new security concepts. For the beginning, I would like to talk a little bit about what are the most common like attack vectors. Like how do people get actually hacked so that our listeners can listen to it and look through are they handling all all the potential security and are they taking all the necessary security measurements to ensure that their assets are safe and secure. Uh, so I have a couple of items on my list, which I would like to discuss today and get your opinion because mm, personally, from all the personal talks we had, I know how much of an expert you are in the security and your products really represents that. So first question is, what do you think about the concept of the MetaMask there or Trust Wallet there? Those wallets require people to use, to store their own seed phrases or private keys and make sure they they secure them. Like it literally gives that necessity of people to become their own security experts. So what is your opinion on that? Maybe how are you using that kind of wallet right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think in terms of crypto ideology, those are like, really cool and sound like really nice in theory because you are your own bank you know that's what crypto is all about so you have the private key that allows you to spend the money using that key my my opinion on this is controversial just because i think that's not scalable it's just like in the 90s people would have to sort of manage their own operating systems and and do very hard things in order to access the internet it's the same with crypto if we want for the for the crypto to go mainstream we have to solve these ux problems and i think like these wallets like that don't solve it at all like managing your own private key is super risky you are a constant target all the time because whoever gains access to that private key gains access to your money and you know it could be a little malware on your phone it could be a, like some file you download on your gmail and that's it it's a game over all of your money is gone so i think that's just too too hard for a regular user uh, to be aware of all the like security attack vectors when using these wallets uh, so in the end i think yeah those are very good i use them myself in some situations for some use cases but then do I think that those like good for a regular average Joe? No, I don't think those are good. They don't have neither the good UX nor the good security for that user. It might have a good security for me because like I understand how it works and I know what to protect, but like the average user doesn't know that. So it's just too complex for him. Even when you know about like protection, like there are so many use cases because of not the user. I will give you a simple example. Like in my personal opinion, you know, like a lot of people use password managers. Yeah. And yeah. password managers are supposed to guarantee you that your assets and your credentials stay safe and they store encrypted. But what we see recently that even the password managers does not present, does not provide you a like ideal layer of, of security. So I know even like quite a lot of people who were storing their seed phrases or private keys in, um, in let's say systems like LastPass or 1Password. But what happens is then LastPass or these other systems gets hacked. Those people goes absolutely crazy 
because you don't know if your assets. So right now, what do you need to do? Do you need to move your assets somewhere else? But where do you move? And it's a little bit of the complex thing. And also sometimes you just like miss the announcement or miss the email that something gets got hacked. So you're, you are never sure. Other people has this tendency on writing stuff on paper. And this is interesting because this is one of the recommendations. Like while preparing for, for our talk today, I have been reading like a couple of Medium articles because I wanted to get what are, what are the recommendations which are online for people to secure their like private keys and seed phrases. So what happens is the first Medium article you open about this, about this topic, they recommend you to write your seed phrase on the paper. For me, it's like absolutely crazy idea. And I know some people who have been doing that, but imagine like losing that. And those people write it on the paper and then like store it on the bookshelf. But imagine okay. like you don't, if you have a hard cash and you would like keep, take that cash and just store in your bookshelf, do you feel secure about your cash or no? Like right now, even, you know, if someone steals if someone comes into your house and, and tries to steal something, you know, like we definitely will look. My personally, my parents' apartment when I was a kid was robbed. So like everything, every single book was checked, etc. So like for me, this idea is absolutely crazy. And if it's a fire or if it's something else. So another idea is to take that piece of paper and take it to the bank. Like, but then again, you need to pay for this is, as I said before, this is, this is not absolutely not scalable because if you want, blockchain to be used by billions of people, we need to have an ideal UX. Internet was also not used while it didn't reach UX. Also the internet access. So every one of us is browsing. And I think this, especially with the MetaMask extension, this is a very, very interesting topic because there are a few attack vectors I want to hear your opinion. First vector is phishing. And the second vector is allowance. And I think allowance is, is more broader. So let's talk about the phishing attacks. How do people get into them? What they should do to prevent, in your opinion, as a security expert? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Phishing is a huge problem in crypto right now, I think. Just because, like, mm, like for example, I receive a lot of emails. I guess my email, personal email got on some scammers list and got maybe bought by some group of scammers and, and they know that I'm into crypto and I get a lot of emails that look very legit. And, you know, it's sort of hard to understand if it's a, uh, of course, I know that I'm, I'm not getting free money. Wh whoever is, is telling you that, hey, here's some airdrop that you can go here and claim, don't do that. There's no free money here. So so just don't do that. So what I'm trying to, to tell is, is that, even for me, sometimes these phishing emails, they look very, very like real. And, and they, I see that there are these people that are doing these phishing campaigns. They put a lot of effort into this. They target the users. Sometimes they even send me the protocols that maybe I'm invested or I, I hold their token. So that, that makes it even more convincing. There's also ways to sort of imitate the, like the domain of the, the email meaning that you could see on Gmail that this like email address like is actually legit or at least at least you would think that this is a legit email even though there's like ways for hackers to sort of use it without having access to the actual domain and there's are ways like the phishing happens there's a lot of phishing going on on Telegram you know when there's there's 
these groups and and you get added to the groups also there's like to the groups and you might think that those groups are official but they are actually not like every time there's a new token launch there's like a phishing campaign going on so like crypto is full of phishing and i i i think it's 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 sort of a hard problem because there's like once you you been fished or maybe once you just live through a crypto cycle you know how these things work and, and you just sort of tend to ignore these just like you would ignore like ads on a page you know you yeah. just scroll past through them but for the newbies that are also like thinking about getting some some fast gains a lot of people in crypto are, are trying to do that so for them it can be really damaging and like my advice here is just to realize that there's no free money and uh, like no free airdrops, no free tokens, no like discounted sales or, or something like there's sometimes there is that. But if it sounds too good to be true, most likely it is not true. So that's the advice here. But uh, the problem itself is sort of hard to solve. Uh, but also there's projects that been trying to, to solve that at least on a wallet level because that's where the, the users are doing the interactions with the scammers, either sending them the tokens or you know giving those allowances or, or doing some other action that's going to expose their, their tokens, their balance. So at, at that point, there is some ways to prevent this, you know, domain checking, address checking, all of those things can be can be checked and there are projects working on it. Uh, the problem with it is that there is just a very hard problem to automate, like solve in an automated way. We've been thinking about a solution and lossless too, but it's sort of just not very scalable, whatever solution you try to do, because there's always a way for the fisher to, to bypass it. So in the mm -hmm. end, you have to rely on the user being aware of these. Uh, attack vectors and, and just phishing campaigns. I think I would like to a little bit simplify that for our audience because there are, you, you mentioned quite a few of different phishing vectors. Like one of the vector is like, hey, you know, really, really simple is like, hey, just send Ether to this, you know, wallet, which is like all this Namibia Prince kind of, kind of phishing attack where it's like, look, send me some crypto, I will send you double tomorrow. Or whatever, but we are, are a little bit more sophisticated. I think quite a few people are not aware. So for me, what is really important to mention is that people should be aware that Google is not capable of filtering all of the ads. Uh, actually, a lot of hacking campaigns, hacking, then hackers launches the fake Google ads campaign. They're using Tors and VPNs and like fake, fake prepaid cards, all these sort of things to protect their identity. And people just come in, right, participate in this I I IDO or whatever. And like they, they just literally click on the first URL available. And they are not even aware that because they believe that Google is like fully secure. A lot of people believe that everything was happening on Google, on the Google search, it's legit. But actually not because they, they are not. Hackers are getting always more. So they are always one step ahead of any possible AI check or human manual check, we are always one step ahead. So never trust, never trust Google search, never trust Google ads. Always look for a trusted sources and always double check the domain, especially if you are planning to spend money. And it also comes not only to crypto, but it also comes to like credit card information as well. Like double check where you add your details, double check with what you are interacting. 
And this is a tricky thing because the way injected, injected wallet works. So it's either your extension on either your wallet. What it does, it basically takes a JavaScript snippet and embeds into the uh, GS runtime. So the application you are using, it understands that in the window.ethereum object, there is this code, like some functions, which like which application can call, and those functions will trigger some actions in the extension or the wallet you use. And the wallet or the extension you use doesn't check with what you interact. So here we come to the second thing, which is allowance. So how the wallet draining, uh, draining hacks. Maybe you can explain what is allowance to our listeners, and then we can go towards explaining how to prevent. And I know that actually the lossless hash one has one product which can help everyone to check their allowances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to try to be sure here because uh, in general, you have to understand that DeFi applications are based on these things called smart contracts. And in order for smart contracts to do some actions, for example, do a trade of the tokens or I know do some yield generation or whatever, they have to have an access to your wallet to move those uh, tokens out and then move some other tokens in. Like that's how a smart app is pretty simple, I think. But it, that approval for that you give for that protocol or product or whatever, it's called like allowance. So, so you allow this project to move some tokens from your wallet. Uh, and in a happy case, you allow some protocol to do some trade. You do the trade and that's it. You receive the new token and, and you swap the tokens. Maybe but you can give an example, like, a real, like for example, sushi swap. You go, you try to swap one year C20 token to another one. What yeah, does happen? Yeah. Like, exactly. What is the flow? So the flow is that before you can do the swap, you have to approve. So maybe I'm, I'm swapping like some lossless tokens for some NLE. And then what I have to do first, I have to approve the Sushi swap protocol to be able to move the lossless tokens from my wallet so that it can, can perform the swap. So first I do the approval. Second, I do the swap. That's how all the dApps work. I guess a lot of people that are using DeFi already know that they, they sort of click through the approval without even thinking at, at some point, I think, when they're doing a lot of these uh, these trades or a lot of interactions on DeFi. Yeah. And that's another topic, but but basically, yeah, it's it's two actions, approve and, and then some action that you want to do. But yeah, the problem comes when you think you are doing some legit action, but actually you are interacting with some malicious contract because it means you are giving approval to move your funds to some malicious actor. And and that's the problem here. You know, it's you like might sushi be... is like sushi swak <laughs> instead of sushi yeah, yeah, swak. Yeah. And, and usually just like, that's okay, how it is, yes. you know. They Let me allow to swap all my USDC. And one thing, I don't recommend anyone swapping lossless cash to uh, to ETH. It's better to Swap your ETH to lossless cash. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, I agree on that one. But you, you had a good point. You know, actually, that's how it is. It's usually just one letter changed in the domain, and you think you are doing a trade on Sushi Swap or like Uniswap, but actually, maybe it's Uniswap that I know double S, and and you get scammed. So so it's it's rather simple when you understand it. But if you are rushing or because maybe you're chasing some opportunity or maybe like some trusted friend of yours send you this link, then then yeah, then 
it can be a problem. And that's the first case. You like give approval to move your funds to some malicious contract. The second case is when you have given approval to some legit project, but that project got hacked later on. Yes, and, and now like the hacker is able to drain funds from your wallet using that that project's uh, smart contract. That also happens quite often, at least more often than I would like it to happen. And that's because people do not remove approvals after, you know, interacting with the some projects so maybe i did this did this swap and i then still have this approval this allowance enabled so that this project can still move some funds at some point you know Uh, so that's a pretty bad practice because because yeah just because of the reason i just mentioned if that project gets hacked it also means your wallet gets hacked and yeah. and it's a good practice to either approve only the amount that is needed for that operation or continuously like remove approvals and and yeah as you mentioned we have a tool on our aegis product which helps people manage this approval you can just connect your mm-hmm. wallet see what sort of approvals you already have on chain maybe we'll, you'll find some like contracts you don't know about and that's like a really big rec- red flag and you should totally disapprove those but yeah once again it's pretty easy problem to solve when you think about it but a lot of people don't know about it and that's that's how they get wrecked okay so as i see there is like several of security layers which people need to be aware about so first of all it's like what wallet you use and how do you how do you overall manage it yes so your private key, your seed phases, your credential information, your 2FAs, because there are other wallets, like more advanced users or the users who are holding like more like assets, more valuable assets or just overall more assets. So that part is like, because your own computer can get hacked and your own phone can get hacked, like don't store your seed phrases on your media because every time you connect a USB cable to your phone or to your computer, it, there is a chance that, you know, like the place where you're connecting, even I, I've heard there are some, there were some hacks where the hacker in somehow managed to install the cables, like charging cables in the airports or like cafes. And people were like putting their phones to charge and like they literally copied the whole phone. Like they managed to like replace something under the hood, under the plastics, you know, of the of the stall. And people people just lost, like, like their whole phone got copied. The second layer is when you interact. So how do you find sources? How do you find websites or decentralized applications, mobile applications? Where do you connect your wallet and how do you interact? So first thing is always double check if you're planning to interact with the smart contracts, always double check where you are connecting and what you are doing. First thing you need to make sure that the allowance you're giving, because allowance, especially when you're dealing with token transactions, allowance is what allows anyone from outside who you are interacting to spend money from your wallet. I think a lot of people are actually not aware of this concept that like contract or other source can spend. Mm, So if you go, even those companies go through security audits, and we're going to talk about that later, it doesn't mean that, you know, everything is perfect because hackers get smarter. There are new attack vectors to all the smart contracts, et cetera. So make sure you interact and you interact in the way that it's finite. You started action, you finished action, 
you make sure that your allowance and everything else is safe and you also disconnect the wallet after it. So, so you're sure that there is no more connection with that website or smart contract or the digital platform you just interacted. Yeah, and I think the third layer is, I think overall being aware uh, of your environment. It's, I, I, I like to say that best for security is like ignorance is bliss. You know, if you just ignore emails, if, if there is really an important thing, People will call you, people will reach out to you. So just like, I, I'm very good at this, actually. I'm like really good at ignoring stuff. Sometimes it backfires. But <laughs> if there is like even slight chance that, you know, this is just a random email from the random person, it's better to ignore that. Also, I want to tell a like a story. My last company, one of the companies I worked with, Olympo, where I was a co-founder, our CEO also get hacked. And it happened through actually because information was leaked in another company we have dealt with and that allowed hackers to create some of the content and create some of the specific environment which absolutely broke that protect like personal protection sense because if that person knows what we are talking about i can interact with that you know what i mean so always be paranoid that's i think that's the most important stuff like to take care of your security. And it's not only to crypto, but also to everything else. What about, so we've raised this topic that private keys, if people need to take care of their private keys, most of the people either will write it on paper or store it in the password manager, or I don't know, what other ways do you know how people deal with their private keys? I think yeah, hardware I guess. was a popular one. Yeah, yeah, I'm a I'm a huge fan of cold storage, meaning having like physical devices that are dedicated to you know signing transactions. I think nowadays they don't cost a lot, but it's like investment in your like security long term. If you in this space for long term, I think that investment is is like really cheap. But even those like get sort of get hacked sometimes. There was an incident on like Ledger recently, which sort of made that if you have a Ledger and you connect it to a DAP, you also could have been hacked. And, and so it's, it's not a bulletproof solution, what I'm trying to say. So I guess for a regular user, my go-to advice is just have some like a uh, custodian that you can trust, you know, some wallet that manages your private key. Uh, have some people take care of your security. Don't try to, to take care of the security yourself because most likely you are not competent enough. Even I myself, like I don't feel safe when I have a private key on my machine, meaning if I just use like a regular MetaMask account, I never would put a lot of money in that account just because it just doesn't feel for me it doesn't feel safe for me so so i think if you are not even you know if you are very new to this crypto topic or even if you are advanced but don't have like programming knowledge or and like security related knowledge it's just worth trusting people that that know how to take care of security and just trusting them with managing your private key i guess that's my advice in in how to manage your, your keys. But in general, I think it's a very like sort of natural thing. You know, you trust people that like specialize on this, have like multiple years of experience on this to, to do their job right. You you don't try to, to do that job yourself. 
Okay. So what do you think about MPC or Shamir secret sharing concepts for our users? The logic of MPC or Shamir secret sharing is kind of similar. Basically what you do, you take your private key, you split it into many pieces, encrypted, distribute around. So your private key actually doesn't exist in any system. As long as there is no overall agreement that this private key should be recreated, which usually happens during the transaction signing. So is that secure enough? And I can I can explain to this, but basically we are using this in our Sakuru app, in the Sakuru wallet mechanism overall. And I personally believe in this. What's your, as a security expert, opinion on that? And can that be overall a future for getting mass adoption of, of security and crypto wallets overall? Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely like one of the, like best ways to store like a key and do transactions through like a sharded key using like Shamir or, or NMPC. Uh, the thing is that just recently there weren't any good uh, wallets or products that would do this to you. So like a lot of projects, including us, but like uh, pretty much everyone in crypto space that has like run some sort of treasury or, or something like that, use like Gnosis Safe, which I think is great and has a very good track record and is very safe, which also is like a similar concept. It's like a multi-sig, meaning that you have mm -hmm. to uh, gather multiple people in order to do a transaction, which mm -hmm. makes it even more decentralized. So it's perfect for managing treasuries. It's not so good if you are managing your own assets because maybe you are just signing it from multiple devices, which is still good, but the, the save doesn't have a good like a user experience on this. So yes, I think secret sharding is a very, very uh, good solution. I'm looking forward to like seeing products that implement it in a very nice and, and user-friendly way. I know there's a few projects that are working on this that also are incorporating like social recovery or, and stuff like that in case, you know, something bad happens to you so that your family members could still get an access to, to you know, your funds. Because that's another problem with managing your private key. Maybe the safest way is to memorize it, you know, then you don't have to yeah. share it with no one. But what happens if, uh, if you get hit by a bus, you know, those funds are sort of lost when her family i have one really maybe. good friend who went for a like like treatment camp like silence treatment camp and after like two weeks i guess of like total silence he came back from that trip and he said now i can remember my private key just looking to it so oh, it, it was super fun <laughs> as well, but yeah yeah it's it's hard and like and one day you can sit also down and it's like i forgot that Oh yeah, yeah, God. and this yes. happens all the time with other passwords. So it will definitely happen with your private key. So don't do this, people. Don't do this. But yeah, the weirdest, this. the weirdest thing is when you go to the shop and you try to pay with it, like your debit or credit card, and it's like, what's my pin? Oh my God, just four digits. <laughs> I did it like a million times. And because you're like, you're remembering it as a pattern, not as a number, sometimes it's difficult. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I think secret sharing is very like, most likely the best solution. Just that uh, I was always thinking that this is not for retail and not for like average user. And it's not the way to go like for for like the, the mass adoption. But I think actually, and I changed my opinion on this with like proper UX, especially with things like account abstraction, getting more and more popular when where you know, 
we're gonna be logging into our wallets with our like fingerprints or I know iris scans or something like that. Then I think these like secret sharing thing is gonna be pretty great because you won't even know that you are using it. Just like when you are connecting to some website and you don't really know how the the SSL certificates and and HTTPS works, it just happens automatically behind the yeah. scenes and happens pretty fast. So I think, yeah, this is like the the solution behind the scenes that is totally the the best one. And if the market will show if it's the best one, I guess it just if it's the best one, it's going to be used by all the apps and all the wallets at some point. Yeah, and also I think it also helps to solve another problem, which is multi-chain. So because private keys are different for like a lot of different chains, and overall interaction with a lot of different wallets are different. Right now, the another problem people are facing because there are so many different blockchains. Now it's like Solana, Sui, Bitcoin, and like they all have different RPCs and APIs, so you can interact. So you have to have like five different wallets, especially if you are like heavily into Web3. If you already start to move, the management of multi-chain assets on the various chains becomes a headache. And then you like, then you not only need to write one private key or memorize, then you need to memorize or, or, or manage tens. Sometimes even I know people who are managing hundreds of private keys. Uh, there is a lot of concern in the market about what happens to private keys, let's say, or to the accounts. If the company who is administering Shamir Sacred Sharing or MPC-based wallets if the company bankrupts or something bad happens to the to the company. So what do you think about that? How can it be addressed? Why people should worry or why people should not worry? What people should check before like deciding what wallet they use or not? Yeah, yeah, it's a very good topic. It's I, I have a story related to this, which is maybe not super related, but I want to talk about something that happened to multi like yeah, I think the project is called multi-chain bridge. Like what happened to them is that their project owner, their CEO, like he got detained by the police, meaning that, and, and he had the, the private keys of the protocol. Then I think his sister tried to do something, but she also sort of got taken by the police. And then the rest of the team was trying to do, you know, something, but they, they just couldn't because they didn't have the access. They didn't have the private keys. So in the end, the, uh, a lot of like the project just like stopped functioning and a lot of money got stopped at project. And, and that's, that's sort of the problem, you know, what happens if, if a project controls a lot of money, but then, yeah, they, they stop operating because of, I know it, it, in this case, it was, you know, some legal issues in, in China, I believe, but in some other case, you know, it could be like some, some other case, like issue. So, I think in that case, what could work really well is is having those social recovery features, or just having like uh, DAO, like, like DAO, yeah. for example, company or like crypto company has DAO where people gather and let's say, okay, something bad happened to CEO or whatever. Right now, all of us can collect and we can recover the keys, recover like recover the access to the system, basically, and we can restore the trust. So something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If we are talking about that example, it obviously was too this too centralized for like you know if there's just one point of failure and it's most likely gonna fail at some point, then it means you know that that funds gonna get stuck. So so yes, I think projects should think of mechanisms 
what to do and what's the operations and and processes in case yeah things go south you know uh so yeah yeah but when we are talking about wallets i think okay i'm trusting someone to manage my private key but maybe that someone i know goes out of business what happens then i think there should also be some sort of mechanism to recover my funds meaning that and there's like some good designs on this actually that that i like uh, so for example one of those is is maybe there's like two keys one is managed by uh, by me but not directly but maybe through my iCloud or or something like that so that you know actually in the end security is taken care by Apple not me then the mm-hmm. second part of that key is managed by that company and whenever i need to sign something you know we just like like combine these keys and do the the transaction but if the company goes out maybe i have a third key that allows me to again combine these two and move the funds out but maybe that third one is then stored even in another location that I don't touch often just to make it more secure. So so yeah, that's like a, a very simple scheme, but it like works in reality and there's more complex and even more advanced schemes. But I think there's, sh- yeah, you should like use custody, but you should use it with care, meaning you should think about these mechanisms of what to do if things go south. Yeah, cool. Okay, I think to wrap up, I would like to invite everyone who is listening to try Sakura app if you haven't already. Sakura app is a Shamir secret sharing based super advanced mobile wallet. What we do have, we do have a lot of protection mechanism told by design. For example, when you browse on injected browser, so you open your wallet and you connect to the sushi swap. If there is a malicious website known by at least several of systems, our wallet, our browser will not even allow you to touch that. Basically, it will prevent you to log in. I don't know, Domantas, if you knew about that we have this feature or no? Yeah, I, I think I've missed that one. Sounds pretty pretty good. That's the, the one that I'm going to be testing next week. Really cool. So yeah, so if you try it, please give us a feedback. We connect to several of big databases, which records malicious website and basically phishing websites overall. Another feature we do provide is before you send any transaction, we also validate the address. We also interconnect with a couple of big databases, malicious wallet addresses. Those wallet addresses are, if you are sending, let's say, to the totally new wallet, we will inform you that this wallet never had a single transaction or single interaction. So in case, because a lot of trans funds are actually lost, not only like get lost not only because other people hacks you, but just people make a simple mistake. For example, like on Solana, there is a case sensitivity and you can just, by copy pasting it wrong, you can change the case sensitivity, which means like like uppercase or lowercase letter. One letter can basically mean that your funds are gone. The same with Ethereum. Either a contract is malicious or the address is non-existing and it will tell you that you have interacted with it a couple of times, et cetera, et cetera. So we do try inside our wallet, we do try to kind of prevent all these small mistakes. And also we try to prevent and build as trusted layer as possible between uh, your wallet and the apps you're interacting with. So yeah, so if you haven't tried, try it. And I think we are ready to move to another topic, which I'm super excited about. Because here, like we both are technical people. We both do quite a lot of coding, but I can't compete with you on like smart contract security, smart contract design. 
I've did quite a lot of it, but you are the, an absolute expert. So how do smart contract gets hacked? Can you just reverse engineer the smart contract hacking process? And what people, and this part is more for the developers. So if you are ever um, deploying or you're a business owner who is planning to dis- deploy smart contracts and you want to be aware of what is happening under the hood of the system you provide to your users, this might be really interesting for you because we're going to talk it from talk about how do smart contracts get hacked, but we're going to try to kind of explain it as simple as possible from like a user perspective so everyone can understand it. So Domantas, can you if imagine you're a hacker, what are you doing to hack another smart contract? Yeah, yeah, what do I do? Uh so first of course uh I guess you start with analysis like hacks don't happen overnight. Uh, actually like people I know there's a lot of like sort of mysticism around hacks how they happen but you have to understand that these people are looking at smart contracts that they are targeting day and night, working on it like a researcher would, I guess a very nice comparison is is auditors. You know, auditors are looking at your code, looking for bugs and issues and trying to, you know, do good and, and let you know about those. But the hackers, they do the reverse. They look at it and then they try to exploit it. So, so it starts with a lot of research from the, from actually, I think a lot of these hacks are done by teams, not a single person. So that's a, another misconception that we have in the industry. Uh, like maybe a, a, a funny fact is that when you look at the transaction patterns, maybe around 40% of all the hacks done and all of the funds stolen uh, are done by the Lazarus group from the North Korea. So, so you have to understand that some of these hacks are state-sponsored operations. People are doing research from like nine to five, most likely doing it as a regular job. And, and North Korea, probably like, not from nine to five, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe they have some longer working hours and, and maybe <laughs> don't have uh, such a good working conditions, I guess. Uh, but yeah, still, it's it's a lot of uh, work to find these, uh, these issues in smart contracts. But what happens next once you find one, uh, you start preparing for it. So what, like preparation is a couple of steps. First, if you're gonna do an exploit, you're gonna do a transaction on blockchain, Uh, meaning that for that transaction, you're gonna have uh, to pay some gas costs. And uh, for gas, you need the the tokens to pay with. So on Ethereum, I need some ETH to pay for the transaction. And that's, I I think, pretty pretty easy to understand, in order for me to get this ETH, I can go a few routes. I Like the, the regular people take one route, they just use a centralized exchange, like I know Binance or, or Coinbase, buy some ETH and move that to their wallet and then do the transaction. Hackers don't do this. Uh, the reason for that is, is, is very simple. If they would use a, a centralized exchange, it those funds would be really, uh, easily traceable back to, to their identity because on centralized exchanges they have to go through KYC and you know give away their their personal identity even though there are like uh, ways they could avoid with some so-called mules that sort of uh, a fake identity is bought on the dark net 
you know, and and going through KYC that way. But still, I majority of the hackers don't do that. It's just too risky for them. And also, there's a better way to do it. You can use uh, laundered money, uh, meaning that you can. There's a way on Ethereum and so on other EVM based chains to use these crypto mixers that mix your funds with other user funds in a way that makes it untraceable. So most of the hackers use this way to fund their wallets, and you cannot really identify where the funds uh, came from because you just see that it came from this uh, Tornado Cash protocol or like Railgun protocol, and, and that's it. And there's a huge pile of money there, so it's impossible. Like there's some techniques and some companies do tracing and they have like pretty good results, but like for a regular user, it's impossible to know that this like uh, transaction uh, is is like legit or not. So that's the first step. It's it's we call it funding at lossless. So they have to do some funding before the attack. The next step is the attack itself. Uh, can you but- can you detect? So let's say um, I'm thinking about the the way basically like because the protocols are mostly known. Yes. So yeah. can you already somehow protect or detect if like someone is trying to interact with your wallet, which was like from the wallets, which were touched by those wallets, you know, like, for example, you see that that address who mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, acquired some ether from the mixer mm-hmm. is deploying a smart contract. Mm-hmm. And that smart contract is interacting with your contract. <laughs> so so is it possible to detect and prevent that? Yes, yes, it's it's totally possible. It's actually what we do at Lossless with our Aegis tool. So you don't really need to write some scripts to, to track this yourself. Uh, our tool Aegis basically does this by default. It If you add an address, and that address could be your wallet or your product, smart contract, it doesn't really matter. We, we start tracking if nobody uh, is doing these actions that are related to your address. And in case this happens, we send an alert to you immediately on, on your preferred channel. So you could even send you an SMS that, hey, there's these actions matching uh, unknown like preparation steps uh, for the attack. And you should be aware and check it out. Maybe you need to like pause your protocol or, or maybe move funds from your wallet just to, to prevent the attack. Uh, so this way, uh, we are able to spot the incident before it even happens. So a lot of people don't understand this, but yes, it is possible. We, we know that you know the first step is funding. The other st- step, I, I haven't talked about it, but it's it's uh, smart contract deployment. So in order to execute a more complex attack, you need a piece of software to do that. And that piece of software has to operate on, on blockchain too. So the hackers deploy another smart contract we call it attacking smart contract uh, and they would they do the attack from from that uh, smart contract so so there's these two steps that you have uh, to happen before the attack even takes place the funding and smart contract deployment we track all of these we track these these malicious uh, like funding attempts we track all the new smart contracts deployed and and then yeah, we immediately send alerts uh, to our users in, in case something like this is happening. And this way, you can pretty easily detect the attack before it happens. And and yeah, that's like the the preparation phase. Then 
finally, the the third step is is the attack itself. So, so a lot of these attacks uh, they use like uh, sometimes it's it's something new, but majority of those they they use mostly two techniques. And the first one is called reentrancy. Uh, to explain it really uh, simply, uh, reentrancy is is like looping through through like some function, but without updating some other variables. So let's say your product uh, project does uh, some sort of uh, transfer of funds, uh, but mm -hmm. it does it uh, before it updates balance, uh, meaning that it sends funds and later on it updates the balance internally. So if it has some sort of uh, re-entrancy issue, then maybe it can do multiple transfers and update the balance only once. And that's how the attack happens uh, regarding and the actually there is an easy attack. way to prevent that. Uh, I think uh, like in the open Zeppelin standard, there's like non-reentrance library, which literally blocks everything else. Like it blocks the wallet address. So the way it happens is like, if you interact, if, if you are interacting with one function, basically it prevents it interacting once again while that function is not finished. Am I, I think I'm correct. <laughs> yes, yes, so. yes, you are totally correct. Exactly, there is an easy way to prevent this uh, just by adding this reentrancy guard that does not allow reentering that function again. Uh, but actually, there, you, you won't believe this, but actually what happened on uh, Curve Protocol is that they also had a, a guard like this but which was relying on the programming language itself. Uh, they were using Viper. It's it's another uh, programming language to use smart contracts. And apparently the Viper, the programming language itself had an issue which made it that reentrancy guard not to work properly. So the developers okay. did the best thing they could. They were using this guard, but then the programming language failed like them so so it was kind of a crazy story i think it's now of course fixed and patched and people should be aware that in older versions of smart contracts yeah, yeah. This, this still can happen but uh but yeah yeah crypto is i think something similar happened with uh, i think something similar happened with the exchanges uh when the java i think the java language like the java machine had some similar issue like three or four years ago it was not re-entrancing for something else but basically it was also a java engine itself based issue which happened to cause some of the like centralized exchanges of uh miscalculating and like a hackers exploited that i think also this re-entrancy uh re-entrance attack happened on Uniswap, if I'm correct, on 2020. Uh, so like even such big names in the industry like a Uniswap, like not always are aware of like all the potential attack vectors. And from my experience, um, even some security audits, why every Solidity developer, especially Solidity, like um, I'm ex I have expertise only in that. I, I haven't written any smart contracts on any other languages, only Solidity. So what's the most important is like, just try to review contract yourself as much as possible. Um, even actually very good tool is like ChatGPT, even for like a basic layer of security, like copy pasting your smart contract code 
actually, and just, hey, can you give me a security review? It gives you a pretty decent security review. So if you are a newbie um, or you're just starting doing Solidity, uh, just drop it in the chat GPT. It will, it will give you a quite a good security insights and you can fix and you can improve yourself. So the next time you will write a code, you will be aware. But overall, be paranoid about the security and solidity is very uh, execution time sensitive language. So if something is being executed one thing before another, those things can really impact and can leave the gaps. So I think this is what you're referring at that. Uh, like two, it's like re-entrancy, but there can be other different attack vectors. So literally when you finish the contract, you like, like the, what I do is like, I scan line by line, every line, and I'm trying to compile what is happening by every line. Um, and of course, yeah. probably tests, but we're going to talk about tests a little bit later. So what is the second attack vector? Yeah, so the, the second most popular attack vector is flash loans. So for for people just to understand, flash loan is is a loan. It's uh, it's borrowing money, but you do it in a single transaction. So so I, I borrow some funds, I do some actions, and I, I then repay my debt at the end of that transaction. It's all made possible due to, to smart contracts because they can have multiple actions uh, in, in one transaction. And how people, like how the flash loans were intended to use was to sort of maybe help arbitrage traders to, to sort of move the price a little by borrowing millions of, of dollars and making the market sort of more efficient. But how we found, you know, flash loans being used in, in the attacks is that Sometimes, once again, there's some issue with the math on your smart contract, and then it allows the project to, to by using large sums of money, I'm talking about tens of millions of, of dollars, uh, to manipulate the price or, or maybe get some rewards by adding and removing the liquidity in a single transaction, or maybe adding the, you know, one of, of the easy uh, easier examples is I, I add like uh, some, like the money I borrow, I add it to, to the li liquidity of the project. It changes the price. Maybe then I, I buy some uh, or sell some other uh, token in, in a very favorable price. And then I remove that liquidity and repay my uh, debt plus interest with the, the gains I gave from that very uh, sort of uh, nice trade that use like price that is totally unrealistic. So, so can it be used why. otherwise? Like, can it be used for like short, like sort of like shorting mechanism? Is let's say if you own like specific token, so you loan, then you dump your token, then you rebuy, give a loan back, and then use the same like rebuy the yeah. token, push the price back, something like that. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, could could totally be used like that. The, the biggest problem is when projects like calculate price uh, based on sort of a very short uh, time span. So like Uniswap and some other mature protocols, uh, like they have these time weighted average price uh, things where you, you don't really, uh, they, they never use price that is based on like just current transaction, just because of this reason, that price can be really easily manipulated 
And if you spread out through even a few blocks, then it's it's pretty much uh, impossible to move it without having actual capital. Uh, but if you if your price calculations are based on a single uh, transaction, then it can be changed really easily with flash loans, and and people should be aware of that. And and a lot of happens, a lot of hacks happen just because of this reason. And there's of course more like fancy uh, hacks involving flash loans, but uh, then it's just case by case. It, most of them are, are quite unique. Okay, so let's say I'm a like I'm developing decentralized application. I'm enterprise who is willing to do it. So, can you summarize in like three easy steps or like five easy steps what I need to do to make sure that my security is is like on top? Put yeah, it and so I, contract. yeah, yeah. So my top advice for security oriented and secure development of smart contracts would be first uh, just know if there are reentrancy issues and if you can just always use reentrancy guards even if you think that there's no possible way to re-enter uh, like your function still use yeah. those reentrancy guards then especially uh, can i can i add a little bit here so especially yeah, there are so many blockchains which are cheap like i think like uh previously then ethereum transactions were so expensive and blockchains were not scalable everyone was like super saving on gas fees but like mm -hmm. right now like and most of the blockchains and transaction costs like pennies uh and for example on sakura blockchain is like transactions are free so it's like just adding that single thing which helps to sleep tight you know like to be calm you know like that you at least will not have this major major issue which causes most of the security hacks you know just adding that one additional function can like save your basically can save your company exactly exactly it it could have prevented uh, a lot of a lot of money stolen for some projects uh, so yeah, then second, just make sure your math is is sound, meaning that you you know what you are doing, you know how you are calculating prices, you know that prices can be easily manipulated, and you are prepared for it. So in DeFi, uh, everything is composable. So you are relying on a lot of third parties and and their data, their prices, their like uh, even like. If you rely and, and you do transfers of some ERC-20 tokens, that's still a smart contract. You still should be uh, thinking that even that can can have issues. You know, maybe they, they, like one thing that actually happened to us is is though the some of the ERC-20s, uh, they charge fees on every transfer. So maybe you are trying to transfer 1,000 tokens, but in the end you get like 900 because of the fees. You have to understand that these integrations uh, like can have issues, so you you should never never trust them, uh, but always verify it. So so yeah, just make sure your math is sound, and you you never are trusting anything. You are always verifying everything. Okay, what do you think about upgradable smart contracts, and are they a potential um, security issue? Because you know you have the owner concept uh, for the. Listeners who are not aware, so upgradable smart contracts. You, um, there is a concept which allows you to upgrade smart contract uh, business logic, 
but not upgrade the data. So uh, you can upgrade the business logic by deploying another contract and assigning uh, assigning the new business logic through the proxy. Uh, and the proxy stores all the data, but the smart contract logic is being handled by another contract, which can be like easily replaced by the owner. So um, potential security risk here is that you lose the access or hacker gains access to the owner wallet, and then they can... Uh, by analyzing and by understanding your like your smart contract, they can either corrupt or we can also uh, we can pretty much block your access. First of all, then we can upgrade your contract and make it uh, unsecure, unexploited, different way. So, what do you think? Like, how should companies should manage that? Because a lot of companies, then they develop, they need their smart contracts to be upgradable. You need to be able to change them, to change logic, to to, and even even if some security uh, breach happens, you want to have this ability to upgrade because you want to fix. You don't want to just like replace everything. Um, yeah. So what can be done regarding that? Uh, and I think this is a little bit related to the topic we discussed before. But yeah, we want. Uh, let's hear you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So I think it's a tool that can backfire, but it's uh, it's pretty much uh, like. A thing that DeFi wouldn't be able to do a lot of things if, if they wouldn't have this tool. Just because smart contract by itself is immutable, meaning that a code you write, uh, you cannot change it later on if you are not using these upgradable contracts pattern. Meaning that, yeah, if you have a bug, you cannot fix it. It's, it's pretty unique to crypto, I think. Uh, maybe it was unique to software when it was, you know, being distributed to like CDs or something where you couldn't upgrade stuff. But now we are used to software that gets upgraded even daily, you know, or or month or weekly, or your iOS uh, on your phone gets upgraded and gets security patches all the time. Uh, uh, websites get upgraded without even you knowing about it. So I, I think it's a uh, it naturally software development world uh, figured out that it's a good thing to upgrade stuff just because uh, it makes it more robust it makes it more maintainable in the long term uh, you can just remove the tech that that maybe you had at some point so I, I i am a proponent of you know these this sort of uh, uh patterns but uh, but then uh, it can backfire uh, as as you mentioned, you know, like maybe like one of the worst things I, I saw when the upgradable smart contract was managed by a MetaMask account and that MetaMask account got like hacked. The hacker, he changed the, the contract and drained all the funds from all the users. So that's kind of crazy. And these things can be that they can happen in case the, the developers of these upgradable smart contracts are not aware. Uh, but still, I, I think it's 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 worth the risk in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, I, I think it's it's worth the risk in a lot of cases, just because in our own example at Lossless, we had a few iterations uh, on our protocol where we improved things, where we added more logic, added like ways to improve things to to do them in a smarter way. So so I think without having those patterns, it would be pretty much impossible and if you are a person that knows what you are doing it's it's all totally okay to to do it i think okay yeah makes sense i think the most important thing is just 
for the developer to be paranoid, especially when you're upgrading or you're directly using the private keys. Are there any um, any solutions in the market which can ease the developer experience when it comes to upgradable smart contracts? Like, like you know, like because one way is just to use it. Let's say if you're using hard hat, so a lot of people are just using private keys directly. But I know that there are some of products and tools which can be used to prevent direct usage of the private key. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, a very good tool for this uh, is is uh, once again Open Zeppelin product called Defender. They have a pretty nice uh, way to managing these upgradable smart contracts, where you could really add those contracts, add the admins of those contracts, do all the signing through their platform, do the upgrades, see who's upgrading what, uh, see how many signatures you you have to to like have for for the upgrade to happen so i'm a fan of that tool so it's that's what i would recommend and i assume there are other like products like that so still my go-to is is that one just because they recently released uh even a a better new version which is even better so so yeah yeah uh, and also open zeppelin team has done a lot of good for crypto you know from creating a lot of these standards and these contract templates to, to doing a lot of great audits and a lot of security related work uh, and research. And and yeah, I think their their team is pretty great. Another thing is that Defender tool I've just mentioned is, is sort of free to use. So, so that's another nice thing from them. Yeah, I think everything they do is just open source. So, so yeah, pretty, pretty good. I want to talk also about public permission blockchains. In Sakru, we have a public permission blockchain, which I believe is an absolutely great tool for enterprises who want to deploy their applications. What we do provide, we provide a gasless mode and scalability and almost real-time block confirmation. But I think when it comes to like enterprise security, what is really important to mention that public permission blockchains also prevent a lot of hacks. How does it happen? Because anyone who wants to deploy smart contracts on, on, on Sakru blockchains needs to be whitelisted first you can deploy a smart contract. So if you are a hacker and if you manage to like somehow get into like some data about other smart contracts, get into the details, analyze those, to deploy the malicious smart contract, you will still need our approval. So we are getting additional layer of security, which is, I believe, and it's probably the best way for enterprises who are looking for the public solutions, public blockchains, but we don't have to mitigate all those risks which are provided with public permissionless blockchains, like, I don't know, any any other public permissionless EVM. So what is your take on public permission blockchains, even though they're managed by the single entity and there is still this, because the whole crypto was created from those like outlaws who shouted that like a single entity can't manage stuff. But in your opinion, is it good or is it bad for enterprises who build on or who want to build on Web3? Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of crypto maxis won't agree with me on this, but I actually think that they have uh, their place and and they are needed in the crypto space. And I think they can do a lot of good, especially for the companies that are looking for a very sort of explicit like security parameters and explicit sort of attack vectors and. Uh, like even some standardization 
because you know the crypto by itself is a wild west you can do whatever you want there's hacks happening almost every week and you cannot really onboard big companies that have very strict requirements for for the platforms they use into you know places like finance marching you know where like the majority of traffic is like some scam tokens so obviously obviously they are not going to use that chain but they also might not want to use Ethereum because there's a lot of like money laundering happening there. And then you actually, your transactions are being processed together with like some people that are moving funds to North Korea. So obviously that doesn't sound good and, and they're not going to do it. So I think there's place for chains like that. And I, I really like the, you know, security properties that you guys are, are, are working on and allowing, because like the thing you mentioned, the, the whitelisting, it sounds like a simple thing. But most likely that like if something like Ethereum would have had it, it would have prevented like 95% of old hacks. Just a, a very simple like that thing like that is able to prevent a very, very big chunk of money being stolen. So I'm, I'm totally into it. I, I think uh, they have their own place they have their own use cases. I've been working on a few myself in, in the past and I think the technology has also evolved because like previously, it wasn't even that good. There were a lot of shilling from companies like IBM to use their chains where in the end they weren't, they didn't have neither the good UX. They were easy for the developers to develop on or manage. And I think now things in, in recent few years have changed and, and projects like yours is really being, bringing this you know, to, to fruition. To, to sort of making it how it should be made and to be useful. Yeah, I think this is what, because as you said, like a lot of like crypto heads, like the real believers in this anarchy and like full decentralization, they we like always against any centralized entity management or at least approval system, something like that. But what it does, eventually what it does, if you look to the crypto market right now, if I'm not correcting, Binance holds at least like 34% of like the whole market. So because they are the company which provides a good UX for trading, a good UX for like for doing quite a few other things. Like for example, fiat off ramp, like Binance had like for a very long time, we had the best solution for that. I think right now there are others who are better, but this embracing this energy causes the majority of the world to shift away from decentralization and by not allowing this small trade-offs, which actually happened right now because like proof of stake and like a lot of other models where crypto moved towards right now, eventually proved to be safer, faster, more secure. You know, even though we, we are a little bit more centralized or a little bit like a little bit different design. So... I think this is the other fact that if you are a good company with a good faith, if you're enterprise with a good faith and you want to build something useful for people, something, it can be game, it can be DeFi platform, it can be identity system, whatever you want to build. If you are already a publicly established entity with the owners, public permission whitelisting is the way to go. If that prevents like the scam and hacks and, and most of the other stuff, that's what we believe. And yeah, this, there is always a discussion and an argument on this sort of topic, but I think there are certain trade-offs which definitely are very, very helpful for just 
development of the whole Web3 and the development of the blockchain adaptability? Yeah, look, a lot of people are criticizing these chains, uh, saying that they are centralized and, and like that's the, the biggest problem with them because, yeah, as you said, one entity controls everything. But actually, a lot of these side chains like uh, Binance Smart Chain or like even Polygon, they also are managed by one company in the end. So, for example, there was this big incident, I think, a couple of years ago on, on Binance Smart Chain. And it was so big that they decided to stop the whole blockchain. And the blockchain was offline for like 12 hours, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they sort of sell you sort of like decentralization. But in the end, when there's a big amount of money involved, but then, yeah, they decide that, okay, we're we going to just turn it off. So... So they, they still have that button uh, on their side. And a lot of like layer twos are managed by a multisig where maybe there's just only a few signers, meaning a few team members can still turn off the transactions, you know, on that sign chain or or uh, turn off the layer two bridging on, on some, some layer two. So yeah, you, you have to understand that the, like real decentralization is very real, very rare, and it's not useful in all the places yeah i i totally agree okay to finish this topic because i would like to wrap up the smart contract series i think we gave a quite quite a good overview of what people need to look for when they develop smart contracts what are the like attack vectors what are the prevention mechanisms for the finish of this topic i would like to talk about the harmony bridge hack and about how lossless cash saved AAG and overall AAG community from a terrible incident, differently from a lot of other projects, which were like very, very angry after it. So I remember two years ago, I think it's two, actually, actually exactly two years ago, I think two years and like two months, something like that. And I started to code AAG token contract. I, I reached out to you because I knew that you're working on this sort of protocol, which could prevent hacks and could prevent, and especially after hacks happen, could allow customers and users to secure their friends and block transactions, which we couldn't do in my previous company after the hack. And I thought that this will be very, very useful. And it turned out that it was very useful. So thank you very much for that. So can you tell about how Lossless protocol works, how many projects you have, and overall, what is the future of it? Yeah, 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 definitely. So lossless protocol is a decentralized way of reverting crypto hacks. Basically, we have a, a protocol that is based on smart contracts that integrates into your ERC20 token. And then there's a way in a decentralized fashion to, to blacklist addresses and retrieve the stolen funds from those addresses by using some like staking mechanisms so some decentralized uh, decision making uh, using multiple parties and and so so it's a quite complex uh, protocol to explain shortly but th that's kind of gives the idea i guess so yeah what happened with the horizon bridge is that yeah a lot of tokens were were hacked and and stolen and only you guys had our tech so only you guys managed to retrieve those tokens so so it's, it's, it's sort of crazy that these, even after we have these uh, crazy stories, uh, projects are still crazy stories of success. Projects are still hesitant to integrate us uh, just because they're afraid of some gas fees or maybe they are afraid of, I know, just not using the standard ERC20 code. Our 
long-term goal is to make it as as a, a standard in crypto so that everyone is using the LERC20 token. That's how our standard is called. It's L for lossless, lossless ERC20 standard so that reversible tokens become like the mainstream thing. And there's actually already some signs of that happening. Almost a year ago, there was this Stanford paper that introduced new way of working with reversible tokens. And, and we had a, a call after that with Stanford people, you know, talking about how, how this could evolve. Just recently, just this week, there was a new paper by, by Circle from uh, that also uh, maintainers of USDC token that also mentioned lossless protocol in their paper. So it looks like this is already happening. And and our like I think our protocol is pretty like great as it is. We just need more and more adoption. At the moment we have over 40 projects that have integrated. And you know one of the things I was afraid of is when starting this this project was that you know we, I, I thought that we need a really, really big like count of the projects in order for at least one of them to be, you know, hacked so that we can prove the tech works. I think at today there, yeah, there was almost like six or five projects that got hacked and we managed to like retrieve funds for them. So I think the technology has like perfect track record and being able to, to do and serve its purpose. And now it's just about the adoption and, you know, spreading the, the seed of security and making people aware that these things already exist. They can use it and they can, yeah, just be, be more secure and secure and make their community more secure. Yeah. You guys are doing a great work, honestly. <laughs> I remember that day, I think it was even like a Saturday or Sunday, because I think most of the hacks are happening at uncomfortable time for the companies who maintain. That's very usual. I already survived through two hack through two hacks. So when I was working in Limpo and when I when I worked right now, both of them happened on Saturday and then we needed to spend like nights and, 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 and days to try to in Limpo, we needed to like track and, and and inform all the exchanges that it was hacked and we should block all the transactions and report addresses. This time it was much easier. We reached out to you. I think you were on holidays as well, if I'm not mistaken. But yeah. you react very fast. So we reverted some transactions, reverted selling. It's still, we needed a couple of parties to approve blocking, but eventually we managed a situation very well. In the future, do you plan to have like more entities to be able to like to basically decentralized like blocking and management much more? And how do you do you have any plans to expand the circle and how you're planning to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. We actually a few months ago we released the ability to wrap the tokens in lossless tech, meaning that if you have some regular token like USDT. You can wrap it and get lossless USDT. And what it does, it allows you to select what sort of like how decentralized you want this to be. So so for example, if a project has has a token, they already launched it, they cannot change the code because maybe it's not upgradable, but now they want lossless protection on that token. They can wrap that token, create an official version of that wrap token. And then when creating it, they can select what sort of members they want to have in their decision-making body, which makes the final decision, you know, to which sort of either validates or, or disapproves the, the hack, you know. So, so now what they can do on lossless, they can actually 
use lossless DAO as one of the voting parties, meaning they, they don't even need to rely on us as a company. They can rely on lossless token holders as a community, which immediately makes it way more decentralized. So that's the, the first thing. But also they can plug in something like Claros. So Claros decentralized sort of judging protocol where they have these juries, uh, which consist of members. And, and it's a pretty, pretty nice project. If you haven't heard about it, I can totally recommend digging into it because it, it at some point it was even recommended by Vitalik, you know, as being a very innovative solution to these decentralized decision-making, to this decentralized decision-making problem. <laughs> so you can plug the there and it would also work. And then in the end, you can plug any address really. So... So you can even plug some sort of your own decision protocol and make decisions in that way. So that's our you know long-term goal to make it as flexible as possible, meaning that as a token, like a, as a project that owns a token, you can really make it so that it matches your own like needs for decentralization. You can make it really uh, centralized, maybe just admin accounts and, and lossless team. Yeah. And and that makes it rather fast, you know, to, to make decisions. But maybe you are not okay with that. So then you can plug like some some other ways to do the decision making. And it really up is up to you. And and our long-term goal is to become some sort of, of platform, a protocol really, and which is not owned by us, not controlled by us, but is just like a sort of a framework for uh, like using these reversible tokens and and these mechanisms that i've talked about have you thought about working with open zeppelin team directly because a lot of these things like in my personal opinion a lot of these things you're working they can be like open sourced and also mm, designed as a base layer of the security for like tokens so have you stayed in contact with them what's what's the status there yeah, yeah, we talked about with them a few times. We we still have a, a pretty hot connection with them. Like so far, they are not super interested in this, just because I guess our protocol is still you know profit generating. Meaning we take we do take some success fees. There's also very strong incentive for the lossless token holders, you know, built in because that gives our token utility. And I think that's what uh, they don't like about it. But as I said, if we are making this a framework, which is decentralized and, you know, can be a plug and play mechanism after we do implement that can sort of change their opinion, I guess. But we were also talking with people from Stanford because they were working on the ERC standard that was supposed to define the how reversible tokens should work. So so we are also still in communications with them just about yeah how how things could work out if we want to make this a standard. Right. Okay. So I think uh, we've talked about quite a lot of things. I skipped some of things from schedule just to not to extend our conversation for too long. I will want to continue those private conversations with you, which I hope to have very, very soon. Maybe you have some final words about about everything we talked about? Yeah, yeah. I First, I, I want people to always stay paranoid. But second, I also want them to always stay positive. Just because we talked about a lot of problems, but in the end, all of them have solutions. Some of them, 
some of these solutions are like already implemented. Others will be implemented in the near term. And in the end, we all going to be, you know, secured in one way or another. You know, it, we are still very early. So we have to stay paranoid, but we have to be positive about the future. I guess that's my my take. That's the takeaway I want the people to to get from this conversation. Thank you. Okay, Domantas, I will let you go. Thank you very much for your time. And yeah, it was really great talking to you. I think we generated a lot of valuable content for the listeners. All the best wishes for the lossless. I'm a big fan of the project and I hope the future will bring the best for you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was a very lovely conversation.